Hello, this is Concepts in Focus, a philosophy series by the Acid Horizon Theory Podcast. In this episode, I will present Deluzengatari's concept of a body without organs. The concept of a body without organs is one that is often the subject of many questions. Deluzengatari is not easy reading. They are often seen as notoriously impenetrable by even experienced readers of philosophy. The purpose of this episode is to explain the body without organs, highlighting uses and examples of the concept that I think will connect with an abundance of readers. My hope is to do so with two goals in mind. One, to demystify the concept while underlining its importance both philosophically and politically. And two, to instigate within you, the listener, a deeper engagement with Deleuze and Gattari, whom I personally believe are among the most important philosophers of the 20th century. In this episode, I will largely draw from Deleuze and Gattari's Anti-Oedipus. Now, both Deleuze by himself and Deleuze and Gattari together developed the concept of a body without organs over different texts. Their experimenting with the concept itself lends to some of the difficulty developing an understanding of it. However, rather than chase down every mention of the body without organs within the author's shared body of work, I will confine the scope of this episode to their work in Anti-Oedipus. In subsequent episodes, I will explore the concept where it is mentioned elsewhere, namely the way it is treated in their famous essay, or plateau, From a Thousand Plateaus, How Do You Make Yourself a Body Without Organs? I also intend to do an in-depth examination of the body without organs in relation to Freud's notion of the death instinct. That said, there will be a lot that I do not mention here in virtue of the constraints I have adopted. With all of that out of the way, let's begin. In order to begin our foray into the body without organs, we need a starting point. Let's begin with a quote from chapter 1 in Anti-Oedipus. Desiring machines make us an organism, but at the very heart of this production, within the very production of this production, the body suffers from being organized in this way, from not having some other sort of organization, or no organization at all. To me, the most interesting part of this selection is the idea that a body suffers from being organized. That is, by being arranged in the manner of an organism. Deleuze and Gattari make it sound as if, at some level, all organisms are uncomfortable with living in their own skin. What's more, they suggest that perhaps the body might want to be organized differently than it already is. Or perhaps it would be better off not being organized at all. All bodies, all organisms, anything that is said to have organization for that matter, processes, systems, societies, etc., suffers from this persistent impulse. In fact, this impulse is a feature, not a flaw, inherent to the forces which produce the organism's organization in the first place. What is it then that causes this suffering? Well, it's none other than the body without organs. But before we get there, we need to lay some more groundwork. To get a better sense of what Deleuze and Gattari mean by a body without organs, we should first investigate what all bodies, with or without organs, have in common. They are made up of flows. So, flows. Look around the world and you'll see flows everywhere. 
There are flows of traffic. There are flows of money. There are flows of tears. And there are rivers that flow. There are different kinds of flows happening inside our body, too. The flow of blood, the secretion of hormones, the processing of waste matter, and so on. Each one of these flows is moving from one pole to another, having both a source and a destination. Commuters are on their way to work or home, and blood is flowing towards the extremities or back to the heart or out of a surgical cut. This flowing of flows from pole to pole compose what Deleuze and Gattari call partial objects or desiring machines. By partial object, Deleuze and Gattari do not mean global objects. For example, the types of designations that refer to things like cars, skyscrapers, or human beings. Think of partial objects as connections formed when our mouth connects to the tip of a straw to take a sip of a soft drink or that which connects the fuel pump to the car's engine. These connections construct a set of poles to and from which something flows. These partial objects are the desiring machines which form the basis of Deleuze and Gattari's political ontology. So I have hit upon Deleuze and Gattari's concept of desiring machines, which should lead you to ask the question, what do they mean by desire? When we think of desire, a few things might come to mind. The desire for food, the desire for sleep, or sexual desire. Throughout the history of Western philosophy, great minds have registered their voice regarding what desire is or where it comes from. When we look at the works of the Greek philosopher Plato, for example, he talks about desire as the impulse to fill up or overcome a sense of lack. An example being lacking food and the sense of hunger it entails. For German philosopher Immanuel Kant, the experience of desire involves the objects of fantasy which occur in the mind and correspond with real objects that exist elsewhere in reality. For Plato and Kant, their respective notions of desire never really escape the enclosure of the mind or the body. In other words, Desire always corresponds to a sense of lack felt within, a sense which also presupposes a strict interiority of the mind and body. Along come Deleuze and Gattari, who suggest that philosophy has had a problem problematizing desire. In fact, the problem with previous philosophies of desire is that they merely considered desire's consumptive aspect and mostly ignored its productive side. That's right, for Deleuze and Gattari, desire is both producer and product. It derives from a process of production they call desiring production. In fact, one of the things that desire produces is a sense of lack, and the notion that lack is an inherent part of our experience of being human. This may be highly counterintuitive from the standpoint of being a human being who desires food for sustenance, However, with the concept of desiring machines as our metaphysical starting point, the idea that lack is produced should make much more sense once we understand a few more things about desiring production. So far, we have discussed desiring machines as that which produces a series of flows. But the universe isn't just all flows, you know. In Deleuze and Gattari's formulation of desire, 
There are not only flows, but there are also breaks. A gas vehicle comes to life through a series of little explosions that happen inside the engine. A series of different parts is involved in moving fuel from the gas tank to the engine, where it is then converted into the energy, which gets the pistons pumping and the wheels of the vehicle turning. All of the flows involved in this process also entail a series of breaks, or points at which the flow is broken and a different flow begins. Simply put, a break simultaneously cuts and connects flows. Consider the example of blood flowing in our body. In order for blood to reach all the parts of the body, its flow must be diverted by different breaks. These breaks include a network of branching arteries and tiny valves in our veins which help carry blood back to the heart. This series of flows and breaks creates a circuit we call our circulatory system. This circuit isn't fully enclosed, however. Other kinds of breaks can connect the circulatory system with other flows inside or outside of the body. The injection of a vaccine or the donation of blood involve breaks that interrupt the regular flow of blood circulation. Even something as seemingly inconsequential as a paper cut is a break, one that not only interrupts the flow of blood, but one that can also disrupt flows associated with you playing guitar or using the touchscreen on your mobile device. These examples show that various flows can branch off from a single break. To sum up, Deleuze and Guattari's theory of desire is based on an ontology of flows and breaks. This simply means that at the most fundamental level, flows and breaks are the kinds of things you'll find in our universe. Altogether, this ontology and the processes I've described comprise what they call desiring production. Deleuze and Guattari also say that desiring machines work by breaking down. This part of their theory of desire will be particularly important when it comes to understanding the body without organs. It may seem counterintuitive as a car owner that its breaking down is what makes it work, but a car once again provides an apt example of what they mean in this case. What breaks down is not the car per se. It may or may not totally break down in a given instance. What are always breaking down, however, are the desiring machines or partial objects, the connections which form the engine, the transmission, etc., and all of their constituent flows. These connections, then, form what we understand to be the total vehicle. This is true of all desiring machines. As flows move from pole to pole, there is a skimming off of matter or energy. The radio skims off electrical power from the alternator, which itself is skimming juice from the battery. At the macro level, we perceive all of these events as the car working, despite the fact that the effect of the breaking down of desiring machines might ultimately mean the death of the car through a dissolution of its parts, or better yet, the dissolution of partial objects. Here is the challenge for Deleuze and Guattari. How can we reconcile the life and death of desire from a metaphysical standpoint? Desiring production is characterized by exchanges and expenditures that occur through multitudinous connections, a process which also expresses desire's inherent tendency towards its dissolution. Put another way, a desiring machine's drive to thrive remains inseparable from its drive towards disintegration. 
We must be careful, however, not to think of the latter aspect in a necessarily negative or nihilistic sense. Desiring machines push towards their dissolution, not a complete negation of desiring production. This is to say that the law of conservation of mass energy is commensurable with Deleuze and Gattari's metaphysics. So once again, the body suffers from being organized. Desiring machines resist the fixity of organization and tend towards their breaking down. But how far can the breakdown go? Does the dissolution of flows ever reach a critical limit? Deleuze and Gattari assert that there is such a limit. This limit is the body without organs. And despite the mysterious ring to this term, we should consider the body without organs to be a real existing entity. The concept often eludes a satisfying description, but there are some metaphors we can use to describe the body without organs. The caveat being that desiring machines and the body without organs are not themselves metaphors. The metaphors they use in Anti-Oedipus simply help us talk about this real metaphysical aspect of our reality, that is, insofar as our metaphysics is a fully materialist metaphysics. Okay, so we are finally ready to address the question of what is a body without organs. Deleuze and Gattari assert that what underlies every organism is a completely undifferentiated and unengendered metaphysical body which desiring machines are constantly pushing against. Organisms experience this undifferentiated body as if it were a mass of larvae squirming beneath its surface. It is a counterflow to the production of connections that could also be imagined as a viscous substrate of primordial fluid or an infinite block of atonal cacophony. Either way, this body cannot be penetrated, and yet it remains constitutive of all desire. The body without organs defines a limit, the limit of desire's insistence towards disorganization. What's more, unlike the production of connections that occurs with desiring machines, the body without organs is in and of itself entirely non-productive. Though non-productive, it simultaneously repulses, attracts, and ebbs in ways that inform the production of connections. As desiring machines break down, it's as if they try to break into the body without organs. The incessant antagonism of the desiring machines in their attempt to penetrate the body without organs produces what Deleuze and Gattari call a paranoiac machine. This machine is characterized by the body without organs repelling desiring machines and their tendency to create connections. In fact, rather than producing connections, well, it effectively anti-produces them in a process they call anti-production. Deleuze and Gattari write in Anti-Oedipus that the production of anti-production is the production of a body without organs. The repulsion of the paranoiac machine, however, is not the only process at work in the production of anti-production. In addition, Deleuze and Gattari write that amidst the repulsion, the non-productive aspect of the body without organs also falls back on the domain where connections are being produced. Furthermore, in doing so, it appropriates these connections, their processes and surpluses that they create. Not to mention that the body without organs makes it all seem as if all production, particularly what we call social production, magically emanates from itself. 
So you might be wondering how does the concept of a body without organs cash out? Before I go on, an important part of Deleuze and Gattari's creation of this concept involves their discussion of Antonin Artaud, the author and playwright from whom they appropriate the term, a body without organs. Often attempts at explaining this concept center around a discussion of Artaud and his work. I'm not going to assume that listeners have looked at Artaud's work, so I will save that discussion for a follow-up episode in this series. Today, I want to talk about the body without organs in terms of something that most everyone understands, well, at least a little bit, capitalism. Particularly, I want to talk about how capitalism has its own body without organs, called capital, and how capital conditions or falls back upon social production. Before engaging in this discussion of capital as a body without organs, we should understand that social production maintains an expansive definition here. It refers to the production of a society's total edifice of productive machinery, its workers, its languages, its customs. Effectively, it encompasses the total scheme of social relations. There is one more piece of conceptual terminology we need to understand before forging ahead. Deleuze and Gattari say that the body without organs functions as a socius. To be clear in advance, they say that the socius is the body without organs. However, it might be more helpful to say that it is a specific type of body without organs. The concepts of the socius and the body without organs may be, in fact, one and the same. And perhaps that's a discussion that we can have at another time. In any event, the socius is another way of talking about the non-productive attitude of specific socioeconomic formations. In a word, the socius is inscriptive. Here are two examples of a socius. Capital, as in the capital of capitalism, and the figure of the despot, the tyrant, or the king or queen under feudalism. Both of these bodies condition the sphere of social relations in their respective socioeconomic formations. However, these bodies produce nothing in and of themselves. Now, what does that mean? Clearly, if you have capital, or if you are the king of France, you are capable of producing something. Consider that both capital and the seat of power in a monarchy both have what we would call a fictional dimension to them. For example, we often talk about money capital as a fiction. Money is part of the story that says use values can be quantified in terms of exchange values, but capital, broadly construed, functions as more than just cash. And arguably, it does more than simply provide a medium of exchange. Capital as a body without organs makes the notion of capital even more abstract than money. And this is a good thing for Deleuze and Gattari as they seek to provide a more robust philosophical model of productive relations than their forebears. As I pointed out earlier, the body without organs involves a force of repulsion. However, the body without organs also maintains forces of appropriation and attraction. The socius becomes the domain upon which the new organs of social production are constituted. Deleuze and Gattari explain that the socius falls back on production, creating a surface upon which both production is recorded and distributed. The recording surface falls back on production, instigating a series of disjunctions a bit like imposing a grid of intersecting lines on everything in the social field. This produces stratification, 
which valorizes some agents of production and represses others. It creates vectors, axes, and thresholds which assign coordinates to all its agents in order to direct flows of desire. Disjunctions also block those producers which produce flows that rival the dominant flows of the socius. Under capitalism, for example, the law plays a big part in producing the class system by channeling flows of capital to some and not others. For example, the relationship between capitalists and the law often involves things like lobbying or using high-powered lawyers to skirt punishment for doing things like causing the market to collapse. Marginalized communities, such as folks living in poverty or in predominantly Black or Latinx communities in the United States, for example, tend to encounter the law through things like selective law enforcement. For the latter communities, the law functions to create a feedback loop of economic impacts which challenge citizens struggling to escape repression. When such communities rise up to combat this repression and demand better access to resources, you can rest assured forces of anti-production will arrive to tamp them down. One more thing here. Do you remember at the beginning of this episode when I said anti-production creates lack? It is worth mentioning that anti-production involves the production of lack. Anti-production involves the immiseration of the masses through their systemic exclusion from flows of capital and the appropriation of the surpluses they create. When we say things like, poverty is a systemic issue, this is precisely what we are talking about. Now, back to the socius. In conjunction with its repressive aspects, the socius also maintains an attractive function. Deleuze and Guattari write that the power of capital is made to seem miraculous, as if all productivity emanates from the body of capital. This miraculating function, or the miraculating machine, as they say, functions concomitantly with the other machines, the plethora of desiring machines, the paranoiac machine, and the attraction machine, and so on. The function of the miraculating machine is to project a productive veneer onto capital, to make its movement seem utterly necessary to production, thus making it a quasi-cause of productive relations. The insistence of capital expands beyond its mere quantitative aspects. Capital creates structures, organs, and processes with qualitative aspects, which condition all of us to capital's tendencies. In other words, the expansion of capital prompts us to think everything in terms of capital, both consciously and unconsciously. Our acceptance of capitalism is not the result of a trick or folks being duped. It is not as if we have fallen victim to a false consciousness, as Marx would suggest. Deleuze and Guattari instead put forward that what we truly perceive is a false, but nonetheless seemingly objective movement inscribed directly into the functioning of the socius. To sum up, the socius is the body without organs as it relates to social production. Under capitalism, it is the body of capital as it suffuses every dimension of life. With so many machines capturing so many flows of desire and reorganizing them to proliferate the infusion of capital into everything, what is the body without organs up to? We might ask, what's its end game? In short, the body without organs functions to create the condition for capitalism survival 
by preserving the modicum of stability needed for its flourish. But compared to other social formations that have either predated or existed alongside capitalism, there is something quite unique going on here. And this is what Anti-Oedipus is about, and perhaps why we should all consider delving deeper into this text. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe to us. This episode is the first in a series on the body without organs. Also, I am one of the hosts of the Acid Horizon live show. Please follow us where you listen to podcasts or on YouTube or find us on Twitter. And by supporting us on Patreon, it helps us make more episodes like these. Once again, thanks for listening to Concepts in Focus.